Is Jesus worth it all? Is Jesus worth everything this world has to offer? Now, I know you're in church, so I get two responses from people in church. They'll say to me, well, I'm in church, I can't lie. <laughs> it's always funny to me. I mean, like, uh, you know, since I'm in church, I'll tell you the truth. Then there's the other part of we're in church, so we don't worry about whether we're telling the truth or not. We just give the right answer. We know the right answer. Is Jesus worth it all? And everyone here as a Christian has to say yes. That's, but, so I don't want you to lie to me because you're in church or whether you're out of church. Don't lie to me there either. Uh, but I also don't want you just to give the right answer because you know the expected answer. I want you to think about it. Is Jesus worth everything this world has to offer? What are you willing to give in return for having your soul safe in Jesus? Soul safe in Jesus, what would I sell to give for that? What would I give up for that? Have your soul safe in Jesus. And we ask the same kind of questions other ways. Is Jesus worth dying for? I've always found that to be a real easy question to answer because no one's putting a gun to my head currently. So the harder question is Jesus worth living for because that's what I have to do every day. I have to live for Jesus. Is Jesus worth a good job, a nice house, health insurance, free education, a career, respect and affirmation, a good relationship with your immediate or extended family? Back to my original question, is Jesus worth it all? Just let that resonate. So now we come to Matthew 17. We come to the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. And we, we start, at least I start with some questions because someone said, I don't know if I have ever heard a sermon on the transfiguration. Well, if you've been here since I've been here, there's a, probably a good chance because I preached the Gospel of Mark early on that you have heard at least one message on the transfiguration, unless you missed that Sunday. But, but why, why does Jesus transform in front of three of his apostles? Why, why does he give this revelation to them? And, and then secondarily, why does it matter to us? Why is this here and why does it matter? And, and I believe in looking at where this comes in the context of Holy Scripture, I believe the answer is this. We must be fully convinced of who Jesus is if we are going to deny ourselves and die to ourselves in following Jesus. Now, why do I bring that up? Because that is what just took place in Matthew 16, starting in verse 24. If anyone would come after me, Jesus says, let him deny himself and take up his cross. That means to die to yourself and follow me. For whoever would save his soul will lose it. But whoever loses his soul for my sake will find it. And what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in return for his soul? Notice how those questions flow right out of what I was talking about. In light of that, now we have this transfiguration. There can be no doubt as to the identity of Jesus if we are called to suffer for his sake. We must be absolutely convinced of Jesus' person and work if we are going to give our lives for him. So this revelation has a vital purpose in discipleship. 
not just to convince the apostles of who Jesus is so that they will believe when he suffers and dies, but to support the apostles and us in our own times of suffering and death. He suffered, so we will suffer. He died, so we will die. He is resurrected, so we will be resurrected. He is glorified, so we will be glorified. We will follow in his steps as his disciples. And if that is going to be true, and if it's going to cost us what it's going to cost us, you better be sure he is who he said he was. So before we dig in, I already feel like I'm getting riled up already, so we better pray. Before we dig any further, let's pray together. Father, it's only by your grace, only through your goodness, only through your spirit, in your word, that we will see Jesus as he truly is, and that's what we want. And so, Lord, I, I plead with you to do what only you can do in showing us Christ in all of his glory. Give us eyes of faith to see, hearts of faith to receive. Uh, remove the scales on our eyes. Break up the stony ground of our heart that we might be transformed into your son's likeness, even this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. So we're in Matthew 17, we're going to start in verse 1, I'll read through verse 13. Please follow in your Bible as I read. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. This is God's holy, inerrant, infallible, inspired word. Listen to it. Listen to him. Did you hear it? Listen. Listen to him, listen to the word, see the word. It all fits together. What's our theme this morning? There's a lot of things I could say, but I believe it's summarized in this. King Jesus is God's beloved son. King Jesus is God's beloved son. Immediately, Matthew gives us the context, and after six days, after six days of what? After six days, verses 27 and 28 from Matthew 16. Jesus had told them, for the Son of Man, I'm sorry, yeah, 27, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here, when he was saying that, some right there, who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. 
and after six days. So here we have the fulfillment of that prophecy. Jesus says something's going to happen, and some of you will see it, and after six days, guess what? Here it is. It was a very quick fulfillment. Usually the fulfillments are not that quick in Scripture, but here is one very important one. Now, why is this so important? As I said before, because Jesus was asking them to lose their lives for his sake. Now, should they do that for just anyone? Like if you're just wandering down the street one day and someone comes up to you and says, Hey, give up everything you have. Leave your family. Leave your houses. Leave your lands. Leave your cars. Leave your job. Come and follow me. And you'd say, All right, let's do it. I'm up. I'm game. Would you just do that for anyone? Should you just do that for anyone? You shouldn't be that gullible. Don't fall for the spam and the scam and the people that call you and tell you there's a rich Ethiopian uncle you never knew about who wants to give you a million dollars, so please just send all of your information over the internet. <laughs> you know, this is way, way off track here. But the Colonial Pipeline, you know, how they got hackers. You know how that probably happened, right? The same way it's happened maybe to you. You're sitting at a computer, you get this email, it says, by the way, there's a, there's a virus on your computer, click here, to get rid, click here to get rid of the virus. And someone in the, in the pipeline did that. Some of you have done that. We've done it. We've been gullible. We've been, we, we haven't been skeptical enough of what's happened, and, and it's cost us. Maybe not $5 million, um, hopefully not. But that's, that's the thought of, should we be this gullible? Should we be this skeptical? Should we just buy into anyone who says this? And the answer should be from all of us, no. If someone comes and says, I am the divine son of God, listen to me, follow me, give up everything, you should say, well, maybe I should have a little information first. Maybe I should be sure you are who you say you are. If Jesus is asking them to give up everything, and if one day he's going to return and repay each person according to what he has done, so not only there is there the promise of suffering and death and dying to yourself, but there's also the promise of judgment and the blessing that comes for those who do follow him. He's going to repay them. If you're going to give your life from someone, you must be sure that they are worth it. And Jesus gives them a sure revelation. He gives it quickly. He gives it for their sake and for ours. That's why it's in Scripture. If it was just for them, he wouldn't have had it recorded. But he gives it for us as well. He gives it so that when he suffers and dies on the cross, we, along with the apostles, don't doubt his ultimate glorification. We don't walk away from the life of suffering now for the glory that is to be ours later. We want the glory. We want joy. We want satisfaction. We want to live for something that really matters. And if we can only have that in this life, then we would sell everything later to have it now. But if it comes in the life to come, we sell everything now to have it later. You can't get confused on where glory takes place so that you don't get confused on where suffering takes place. So that, Paul writes in Romans 8, 18, for I consider... I forgot to give the first point, so that's why we're behind. I'm sorry, Becca. Becky? Becca? I'm really confused. First of all, real simple, Jesus reveals his glory. Point one. All right, I'll calm down. Just for a minute. Jesus reveals his glory. Let me bring that out. In verse 26, it says, The Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. Verse 2 of 17, And he was transfigured before them. Jesus reveals his glory. Some of you will not die until you see that glory. And here it is. 
Jesus reveals his glory, and we have to see that. Notice the connection, though, to suffering, Romans 8.18. Now we can get there. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The sufferings of which time? The present time. Where's the glory that's revealed? It's coming. Suffering now, glory later. Is that true? Do you believe that the glory is coming later? 1 Peter 4.13, so that was the Apostle Paul, now the Apostle Peter. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. We're going to suffer now, glory later. Both apostles, they lay out the same thing. And if that's not true, then why suffer now? If there's no glory later. If we suffer now and there's no glory later, what kind of people are we? We just got scammed. We just, you just gave up everything for what? There are people, the majority, the vast majority of people that you know in this world are living for all the glory when? Now. They are selling everything later to have glory now. Now, which one is the fool? Us or them? If you're going to sell it all, if you're going to give up it all, if you're going to, you're going to lose it all now and suffer for years, decades in this life, you better be convinced there's glory later. So that's what Jesus does. He reveals his glory. Behold. It's twice in this passage. Behold, Jesus is God in human flesh. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Stop and just try to let that sink in just a little bit. You are there with a man. More manly than me, but a light like me. All right? A man. And all of a sudden... His face is shining like the sun. Did his face change? Did his features change? No, it's, it's the same body, but now it's shining. And he, his whole body is shining like the sun, so much so that the clothes that are between them and the light glow. They're, they're, they turn bright as light. That actually happened. Can you try to imagine it? What does that mean? Why is that so important? Now, the problem is we can read it like that and be right past it. Some of you have read this hundreds of times. You've known this maybe your whole life. You're familiar with the information. And so we just read it. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun. And his clothes became white as light. Okay, yep, got it. Transfiguration, transformed, he's good. You know, we know what that means. It means that Jesus is God in human flesh. He was transformed. This is from the Greek word metamorpho, metamorphosis. He's transformed, but, but it's not a transformation as in he moves from uh, tadpole to frog. That's not what we had here. What we have is this, in this transformation, we have the veil removed so we see him as he truly is. 
His whole life, the veil is there, the veil of human flesh, and we couldn't see who he was. We couldn't see divinity. We couldn't see glory, but, but the veil is lifted, and the glory shines through. He is God in human flesh. Unbelievable. Magnificent. Never before imagined or seen by anyone ever. And it's so either familiar or so black and white on page, on a page of a book that we just blow right past it in a sense. I mean, just this week, try to find a quiet moment for five minutes and read that verse and just meditate on it. Jesus is God in human flesh. He glows like the sun. Just try to, try to let, let that sink in. Let that sink in. So, and, and we should probably just sit here in silence and try to let that sink in for the rest of the 45 minutes I'm going to be talking. And then go home and do it some more. They say, okay, we got it, we got it. We, no, no, let it, it must sink in. Let me tell you why. Before I tell you why, I've already kind of told you why, I'll tell you again like three or four more times at least. Before we get there, let's walk through the passage. So Peter, James, and John are there when it happens. What would you have done? I, there's just no way to know, is there? It's like, I, and Peter has, Peter has a response. What's so great about Peter is he always responds. He responds quick and he tells you what he's thinking. And we love Peter because a lot of times he does what we would have done. Or he does what we wish we would have done. I wish I had his boldness. I wish I had his, his courage. I wish I was like Peter. People like, I don't want to be like Peter. Man, I could be half of Peter. You know, I'd be, be way better than I am now. So don't mess with Peter. His, but he has a mixed response here. The first thing he says is, it is good that we are here. Recognize, this is what we must do. We must respond as Peter did. Recognize the goodness of Christ's divine presence. We must respond. So who is Christ and what is our response? He is, the, he is God of human flesh. What's our response? Recognize the goodness of Christ's divine presence. It is good that we are here. Well, Peter, where else would you be? Where else would you rather be than here? I mean, it's one of those moments like, you know, hey, this is a pretty good place to be. Yes, understatement of the year, but at least he said something. And he said something good and right. It is good that we are here. When you see Jesus face to face in heaven, what will he look like? He will look like this. He will be a man whose face shines like the sun forever. In fact, in Revelation, it says we won't need a sun because he is the sun. And if he shines like the sun, it's like, oh, that, that kind of makes sense. It goes right back to here. When you see him, you will wonder why you clung so tenaciously to this life, to this world. When you see him face to face, you will say, oh, I wish I would have gotten here sooner. You won't see him and say, you know what? There's some places I would rather be right now. There's some better places. You know, the Rocky Mountains are beautiful this time of year. I love the ocean and Myrtle Beach. It's gorgeous. I just would like to sit on the beach and have some sun and maybe a Corona. Not for all of you, all right? 
And that's, that's paradise, right? That's where I'd rather be. Was that, right? Is that what we're going to say when we get to heaven? We see the Son of God glowing like the sun. It, we're we're going to say, what in the world were we thinking? We're thinking this world was even worth any time. Now don't take that and say, all right, I can't wait to see Jesus. Let me do everything I can in my life right now. That's not what I'm saying. It's talking about why we cling so tenaciously to this life, this world. So where would you rather be? It is good to be in the presence of Jesus Christ in all his glory. There's no better place than his divine presence. Secondly, we need to recognize the uniqueness of Christ's divine identity. We need to recognize the uniqueness of Christ's divine identity. Peter then says, I will make three tents. Something is not quite right with this response, and different people disagree. You can study all of those, and you can argue with all kinds of people. Have at it. I'm not really going to focus on that, other than to say, I believe in my study that this is probably a Christological error where Peter wants three tents for Christ and two prophets. And really, what? how many tents should there be? If you're going to make a tent, you make one tent. There's one temple, not three temples. That's probably what it's referring to, why there's something wrong with this. Um, but that's not a big deal. I'm going to move right past it. But if you don't get it, there's something different between Jesus and Elijah and Moses. Did you get that? Something radically different. We, we don't, shouldn't put them in the same category, even though we should highly respect Moses and Elijah as God's prophets and all those things that go with it. Uh, Jesus Christ is unique. Now, what happens? Peter's talking and then something else happens. The Father confirms Jesus' identity. The Father confirms that Jesus revealed it. And then the Father confirms that we have two testimonies. We have the eyes and what we can see with our eyes in Scripture. And then we have God the Father speaking. So as Peter is speaking, God interrupts him with this bright cloud that envelops them. So he's still speaking with behold. And that word behold, do you remember what that word behold means? It means stop and look. Twice is in this passage, which reminds us, so importantly, it reminds us of this. This passage needs to be experienced as much as understood mentally. It's so hard for us to put ourselves in the narrative, but we must do everything we can because we need to experience this as Peter, James, and John experience as much as possible. We, we can't get there, but we need to experience it. Behold, and twice it's stop and look, stop and look, stop and look at Jesus in all of his glory. Stop and see what happens as the Father confirms his identity. The very voice of God speaks, this is my beloved son. There can be no doubt. See it, hear it, feel it. Be reminded that this is what the Father said at Jesus' baptism. Matthew 3.17, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Confirmation at his baptism, confirmation at his transfiguration, confirmation throughout. This is my beloved son. It's just, we should know that. We, we have to hear that confirmation. But the father adds something this time that he didn't say there. He says, listen to him. Now, when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. What did they hear that led to their terrified response? Now, when Jesus was transfigured before them, they didn't fall on their faces then. Here he is shining like the sun, glowing white in every part of him, and they don't fall on their faces then. But the Father speaks, and something about what he says or how he says it causes them to fall on their face in terror. 
It doesn't say. Was, did his voice thunder so loudly? I mean, have you just ever heard this, the, the, the lightning right near you and the thunder just almost like, almost knock you down? Is, is that how, is that what it was? His voice was like thunder and, and uh, it was so loud that it just terrified them? Or was it what he said that terrified them? Or a combination of the two? We, we don't know. But something causes them to fall on their face in terror. Which application for us? Falling on our face before God is exactly the right thing to do. We must worship Jesus as God. Fall on your face before him. Falling on your face is a physical posture of worship. Not that you should necessarily do that in public. Because it's too prone for us to be look, getting people to look at us as we give great demonstrations of our commitment to worship. So uh, we don't all need to next Sunday decide, well, if you want to really see me worship, Pastor, I'm on my face. Here we go. We haven't made room for that. That's another thing. Um, but but that, is, that is the physical response, falling on your face before God. Now, the question I had is, why didn't they do this earlier? They should have. Seeing Jesus in all his glory, they, they, should, have been, they should have been on their face, right? And, and so something about that, but now they are. And then secondly, we must obey Jesus as Lord. We must obey Jesus as Lord. Who says? Who says? Don't you like that one? Someone says we have to do something. Well, who says? Who is that that said? God said. <laughs> Listen to him. Who says? The Father says. Now, after all of that, why does Jesus tell them to have no fear? It's really interesting. I believe it's because terror is not the proper fear of God. We are not to be terrified in the presence of God. Fearing God is this. Fearing God is the reverent... Okay, I got to read my own writing here. Fearing God is the reverential honor, holy awe, and total love that causes us to worship, serve, and obey God in everything. Fearing God is the reverential honor, holy awe, and total love that causes us to worship, serve, and obey God in everything. That is what the Bible means by fear the Lord, fearing the Lord. Terror is not that. And so then I thought, is terror ever the proper response for a Christian in anything? If we're not supposed to be terrified in the presence of God, then are we ever supposed to be terrified? And so if you, I didn't have time, but if you want to look up the word terror or terrified in the scripture and trace that through and see if there's a good time to be, that would be a great thing to check out. But apparently, if, it's, if terror is not called for in the presence of God, then I don't think terror is called for anywhere. So my question is this, what do you fear more than God? I know we're not supposed to. Fearing God is demonstrated in keeping his commandments. And the only reason you don't obey his commandments is that you don't fear God enough, you fear something else more. So when you sin, one of the questions is, if I sin in rebellion against God, then I didn't fear God, but I didn't stop fearing. What, what do I fear more than God that would allow me to sin? What do I love more than God that would entice me to sin? So fearing God, loving God, those are questions that come with sin. What do you fear more than God? The only reason you don't obey his commands is that you fear something else. And you don't love God enough, therefore you disobey his commands. Fear and love are the bookends of what it means to worship God. Fear, 
all the way in every aspect to love. That encompasses what it means to worship God. And before we move on, I want to just highlight this. Don't miss the Trinitarian implications of this passage. The Father and the Son are together as distinct individuals. The Father speaks from heaven. The Son is on earth glowing like the sun. They are not one and the same. They are the same God, sharing the same nature, but they are two distinct individual beings. That's Trinitarian. And sometimes we can read the Scripture and blow past all of the implications so often. The Unitarians say the Father and the Son are the same being and the same individual. So either God is the Father or He's the Son. He's not both. God is not both at the same time. But no, one nature, not three gods, one nature. Someone help me out here. I'm losing track of what the doctrine is. One God and three persons. There it is. Wow. I need to study up a little bit better on that. That's so vital. <laughs> Where's my catechism answer? Catechism answer. One God and three persons. So two persons here. Two individual persons, one nature that is God. And don't miss that. It's so natural, it shows up so often that we can just blow past that. But what happens next? Jesus commands his disciples. Jesus commands his disciples. What does he say as they're coming down the mountain? He says, tell no one the vision until. Tell no one the vision until. Don't tell them now, but tell them later. Why is that? Don't tell them now because Christ's transfiguration would be misunderstood until he was vindicated in his resurrection. His transfiguration will make no sense when he's on the cross. How does God die? But it will make sense after he's risen from the grave. Because he's not dead, he still lives. So don't tell anyone the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead because in this vindication, it will all make sense then. The cross only makes sense after the resurrection. The transfiguration only makes sense in the cross and the resurrection. Now the disciples understand here that he is referring to his own death and resurrection. But once again, they don't understand how that can be. His death doesn't make any sense to them after what they just saw on the mountain. Wouldn't that be odd for you? He's going to die? Because you have to die before you're raised. How is this divine man going to... Who could ever kill God? You just saw him. It cannot be. And so they have a question, which is good. We should always ask good questions. And this time, it is because of the prophecies about Elijah preceding the coming of the Messiah. And so they ask, if you are the Messianic son and you are here, then why are the scribes still talking about the fact that Elijah has to come before you come? If you are already here, then Elijah already have to, had to come. And we haven't seen Elijah. Well, we just saw him on the mountain, but we, didn't, we haven't seen him around. In fact, after he left and he's gone. The reason the scribes didn't see Elijah and the reason the apostles didn't understand and see Elijah is because they didn't recognize that John the Baptist was the fulfillment of the Elijah prophecies. That's what it says. So he answered, Elijah does come. So the prophecies are true. And he will restore all things. But, here's the contrast, I tell you, he has already come. 
And what's the problem with the scribes? And therefore the problem with the apostles who were asking the question. But they did not recognize him. And they did to him whatever they pleased. Did to whom? Verse 13, they understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. They don't recognize that John the Baptist is the fulfillment of the Elijah prophecies. And therefore, they also don't recognize that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Messianic prophecies. They don't recognize because spiritual recognition is a gift from God. You won't recognize, you won't see unless God opens your eyes to see. Show us Christ. He must do it. And if you don't do it, you're going to miss it all. So it's God's grace and mercy that reveals to us who Elijah is, who the Messiah is, and all of those things. Another reason why you don't tell anyone the vision is because Christ's transfiguration would be misunderstood until his mission was completed in his suffering and death. Christ's transfiguration would be misunderstood until his mission was completed in his suffering and death. John the Baptist fulfilled his mission. But what happened to him in the end? They did to him whatever they wanted. He died. His head was removed from his body and stuck on a platter. So Jesus is going to fulfill his mission. And his mission is, is what? It's to die on the cross. He's going to suffer. His mission is suffering. His mission is death. And this transfiguration does not make sense in light of the suffering and death until the vindication comes. And then we put all of the pieces together. Jesus will fulfill his mission, but he dies in the process. And this is why he came. This is the good news of the gospel. Jesus Christ, the divine son of God, God in human flesh. He suffered and died for the sins of all who trust in him. He suffered and died in the place of sinners. He paid the price for our sins if we trust in him. That is why he came. He died in the cross in our place for our sins to redeem us, to rescue us. That's the good news of the gospel. This son of God who's glowing like the sun will hang on the cross dying for our sins. How can that be? Because he is the divine son who will raise from the dead and be vindicated. And one day he will ascend into heaven and be seated at the right hand of the glory of God the Father. And one day that glowing Son of God will come riding on a white horse with a sword of judgment coming out of his mouth and he will rule and reign forever. This is the whole story. So see him on the Mount of Transfiguration. See him glorified because when he dies, you can't forget that. And when he's resurrected, it'll make all the sense in the world. And you also have to see that while we wait for him to return because he ascended and he'll come like he left. In bodily, in glory, he will come. And this moment is just a foretaste, just a glimpse of what's to come. Now notice what Jesus says. He says, so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Verse 12. So now Jesus returns to the theme of suffering, death, and resurrection. Look back at 16, verse 21. 16, verse 21, just should be a page or on the same page. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. 
And here he returns. So everything from what he said then explicitly to his call to take up your cross and follow him to the transfiguration comes back around to this. Suffering, death, resurrection. That's for Jesus and that's for his disciples. That's the cycle. Follow me, you will suffer, you will die, and you'll be resurrected. Why? Because I will suffer and die and be resurrected. And if you are going to suffer and die for me, because you follow me, because you trust in me, if you're going to give your life or lose your life for my sake, you better be sure that when I give my life, it's for a purpose. It's not because I'm not who I said I am, but because I am who I said I am. And you must be convinced of this truth. You must be convinced. So this entire section hangs together. He starts with a theme, he finishes with a theme, and everything in between all fits together. And so it's in this context that we, I believe, can truly understand the very purpose of the transfiguration. It is not simply to show us who Christ is. He is the divine son of God. Does it show us that? Does it show you that? When you see him on the mountain, transformed in all this glory? Of course it does. It has to. But is that all it is, is to convince us of that fact? Or is it to convince us of that fact so that as we live in this world, as we face suffering and death for Christ, we will be convinced that because who he is who he said he was, we can do what he's called us to do. And he is worth at all. If you don't see him transfigured, if you don't believe that fact, if you don't see the divine son of God in that moment, and if that doesn't strengthen you and encourage you and, 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 and buoy you under those times, then what will? When you're suffering, when you're persecuted, when you lose your job, when you lose your family, when you lose relationships, when you lose your health, when you're thrown in prison, when you're fed to the lions, when you're thrown in the fiery furnace, what will sustain you in those moments? You must be absolutely convinced that Jesus Christ is who he said he is, did what he said he did, and this moment should be indelibly imprinted on your mind. You must see Jesus. You must see him with the eyes of faith in all of his divine glory. Even though you weren't even there physically and haven't seen it physically, you must believe. If you don't believe, it's in those moments of suffering. It's in those moments of persecution that you will give all of Christianity up for the lack of suffering, for the comfort, for the ability to have some glory, some comfort, some ease now. But if you see and you believe and you cling, you will give it all up for the glory that is to come. The thing that we have struggled with as American Christians is that somehow we became convinced that we could live for both now. We can have glory now and glory later. And it has been easier for some Christians throughout history than it is for others. There have been times of no persecution or little persecution, times of blessing, and we should thank God for those times, but we should never have been lulled into the delusion that we can have it both now and later. You can have your cake and eat it too. Glory now, glory later. It's going to, you're going to have to choose. What is Jesus worth to you if you see him with eyes of faith and believe he is worth it all? There's a song by Sovereign Grace called Give Me Jesus. Take the world, but give me Jesus. And it's from an old hymn. You might recognize some of, this, some of the lyrics a little bit different. Take the world, but give me Jesus. All its joys are but a name 
but his love abides forever through eternal years the same. Take the world, but give me Jesus, sweetest comfort of my soul. With my Savior watching o'er me, I can sing though billows roll. Oh, the height and depth of mercy. Oh, the length and breadth of love. Oh, the fullness of redemption. Pledge of endless life above. Take this world. My God's enough. Take the world, but give me Jesus. In his cross, my trust shall be. Till with clearer, brighter vision, face to face, my Lord, I see. Oh, the height and depth of mercy. Oh, the length and breadth of love. Oh, the fullness of redemption. Pledge of endless life above. Take this world by God's enough. Now, some of you remember the hymn, It Will Be Worth It All Till We See Jesus. But the only way you will sell it all now to see him then is if you see him now. With eyes of faith. And it will be worth it all. When you see him glowing like the sun. Face to face in all of his glory. You will know that your suffering was worth it all. There is not even a comparison. To give it all for Christ. And hundreds of thousands. If not millions of Christians. Have given their lives down through 2,000 years of history. For this transfigured son of God. Suffering Savior, resurrected Savior, ascended Savior, coming again Savior. But you must see so that you believe. So that you are willing and convinced to suffer for his sake. If you're not a Christian, if you're not a Christian, you must see Jesus as the suffering Son of God. You must listen to the Father, hear his voice and submit to Jesus. Listen to him. You must deny yourself. You must die to yourself and follow Jesus. That's the call. If you cling to this world, you will sell your soul for this world. Or you can sell this world for your soul and you can't have it both. I mean, we're familiar with the the whole term, right? Sell your soul to the devil. The culture knows all about that. Where does it come from? You're going to sell your soul for something. Or you're going to sell something for your soul. What's more important to you? Eyes of faith will give you the answer. Without it, you will sell your soul for this world. And if you're a Christian, see Jesus in all his divine glory. Hear the Father's divine declaration. Take some time this week. Get alone. Sing the old hymns. Sing the new songs. Sing songs that help you to see. And in quietness, try to see this moment in your imagination. And imagine, see Jesus for who he is. And meditate. Hear the voice of God. And have your soul encouraged and strengthened. I tell you what, I've been a Christian my whole life, if I can put it in those words. 47 years old. Can you believe how young I am? 47. I know I look 67, but I am only 47. And this week, for the first time I believe, I had a glimpse of what happened here. I had a glimpse. It, it finally made sense of, more sense, at least, of why it's here. I encourage you to have that moment yourself, to, to give yourself to, to seeing it. And in that moment, then be encouraged, strengthened, and convinced that Jesus is worth it all. Man, 
It's easy to say here in this moment. But for all of us, there will come a time, if not multiple times, if not many have already come for me, for some of you, where you had to make a decision. Is Christ worth this or that? And if you haven't had to face those choices, they will come. Be prepared. He's worth it all. Father, what a glorious, glorious vision in the pages of Scripture. Give us eyes of faith to see Strengthen and encourage us that we would be prepared to face and to give up anything to have Christ. We would deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him today. We are thankful for every good and precious gift in this world, every great thing you've given to us. But Lord, it is not worth, not any of them, not one of them, nothing is worth our soul, and nothing is worth Christ. Lord, do your work in us. In Jesus' name, amen.